there's a problem sometimes when I go to a restaurant or even if I'm at home. I struggle with a certain ratio uh, in my eating. If you go to Chili's, you we always order chips and salsa. And it's always nice when it's bottomless because you can know that always it will work out in the end. All right? But I, I can't stand it when I'm at home and I have my chips and my dip and I don't get the right ratio. You know what I'm saying? Does anybody know what I'm saying? You know, whenever you get your plate and it's got your dips and you got your chips, but you run out of dip before you run out of chips, or you run out of chips before you run out of dip. And that's always bothers me. So how do you handle your chip to dip ratio? How do you handle it? You go back and you try to even it out, right? Anybody do that? Raise your hand. Confession. Or do you just rinse your plate off and say, oh, better luck next time and just waste the perfectly good food? No, you don't do that. At least I don't. You've got to measure it out. And if it doesn't work the second time, third time's a charm. You go back and tell you work it out and figure it out on how to make that ratio work. It's a balancing act. Then you even can kind of go into other areas of our life and you think about balancing. You think about that, that little needle in the car. Whenever you know you're traveling from here to there, from A to Z, and the needle in the car says it's time to pull over because you're about to run out of juice, you're about to run out of gas, and so therefore... What do you do? What do I do is I get this adrenaline rush in me to see just how far I can make it before running out of gas. Now, I am proud to say in 42 years of living, I've never run out of gas. And it's, it truly is an adrenaline rush whenever you're going through that, through that journey. Now, uh, I don't know if I ever ran out of gas, if I would call that adrenaline or anger or, or what. I would. How many of y'all have ever run out of gas pushing the needle as far as you can go? Great. All right. I'm better than you when it comes to the needle-gas uh, ratio. These are the struggles of our life. These are the balancing acts that we have to go through. There's another balancing act that I think is a little bit more personal, a little bit more meaningful. For years, I wanted to get fit, lose weight, get in shape, get that 18, 19-year-old physique back. I tried all manner of things. You know, go to the doctor. The doctor says, you need to do something, restless nights of sleep and droggy afternoons and health conditions that began to manifest themselves and it just it was not a it was not a fun feeling and so what do you do? You go get a gym membership. And when you get that gym membership that fixes everything, right? All you have to do is have the card. And if you have the card all of a sudden the weight just falls off. Right? No, because you got the dip chip ratio balancing act going on in your life at the same time. So you're you're trying to figure out life and get your life in order and and I can remember for years buying membership after membership tool after tool, tread machine, weight, whatever, all the latest gigs, the ab master or whatever it is that you buy to fix the, the out of shape problem, go on a new diet, got a new diet out there, everybody's raving over the diet. And I realized this, that my body didn't like something. It didn't like the exercise. You know, even though I wanted to, there was a part of my body that said you need to do this and all these other gimmicks out there are not going to fix it. And so you've got to get in there. But every time I got into whatever it was, pain would well up, sweat would start beating on my body. And all of a sudden, I didn't want to. My body was convulsing, saying, don't do this to me. So what did I do? I listened to my body, and I would run for therapy to the refrigerator and try to figure it out that way. You know, again, balancing act. And I had to realize this. I realized it a couple of years ago. I had to tell my body to shut up. 
And I had to realize that I had to train my brain to enjoy the pain. And that there was something about enjoying the pain. And again, training the brain to enjoy the pain is not easy. But it was at that point that I began to see difference in my life, in my health. And so until you train the brain to enjoy the pain, then you will always run for therapy to the fridge. You will always put out beside the road the new latest gadget. You will always condemn the health health books and all that kind of stuff. It's a balancing act. Balancing is something that we constantly are battling in every area of our life. But there's even something deeper in the balancing act of life. And it's that balancing of our body and our spirit. Our inward man and our outward man. And this is not something that's new to our generation. It's not something new because we're now the obese generation videos and watching television that we struggle now with this inward outward. This is something that we have dealt with, mankind has dealt with for years. Socrates himself prayed this, may the outward man and the inward man be one. May the outward man and the inward man be one. He realized that congruency of inward and outward, that alignment between the inward and the outward had to work out. It had to play. There had to be some synergy between the two. Because if the inward was different than the outward and the outward was different than the inward, then there was there was this there was this negative pull against each other. They would war, they would fight. We take the scriptures as we go continue through Ephesians, and we see Paul kind of doing somewhat of a shift. If you have your Bibles, be finding Ephesians chapter four. We're halfway through our journey through Ephesians. We started at the first of the year. And for the first part of the journey through Ephesians, Paul has been dealing a whole lot with that inward man, with how the inward spiritual side of who we are needs to understand God. It was almost this theology and doctrine, but now he's going to move to more of life and faith. Paul moves from exposition to exhortation, from indicative to imperative. He moves from faith, or excuse me, from from fact to action. There's this major shift, if you're looking at Ephesians, that you will begin to see. We had this deep theological discussions about the election and about predestination, about being chosen by God. We had all these deep theological discussions about being dead in our trespasses and sins. But theology that is only a knowledge-based theology, and only we have all of our theology systematized, all that is is just babbling. All that is is just rhetoric, meaningless rhetoric. You find in all of Paul's writings, whenever he would deal with something deep theological, he would always, always come back and show how the deep theological issues of life fit into the practical everyday of life. You'll not find in Scripture a more theologically in-depth book than the book of Romans. Romans is absolutely deep in theology. Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 11, theology, deep doctrinal theology. But an amazing thing happens. In chapter 12, verse 1, all of a sudden, Paul makes this switch. Therefore, because of all of this deep theological reality that's over there, because of that, we need to understand how that applies to the renewing of our mind in a lifestyle portion. It, it comes back to the rubber meeting the road. 
It's not just theology inside this church building. It's practical theology outside of this church building. It's in your homes. It's in your business. It's in your day-to-day life. It's in your thought life. It's in your inward man. It also affects your outward man. When you find the book of Colossians, you go to Colossians, you'll read from Colossians. There's this whole section there on theology and the deep theology. But you come to chapter 3, verse 5, he changes. And he says, talking about putting to death what is earthly in you. Putting to death what is earthly in you. Deep theology leads to intense practical understanding. So it's not some head faith that we're dealing with. We're dealing with lifestyle Here's a life principle for you. Sound theology should lead, I should say, should lead to sound living. I'll say this. You'll not have sound living without sound theology. You'll be following every wind of doctrine, every new idea, every every famous writer, popular author that's out there, okay? Oprahology is what I call it. The latest thought is what you'll be chasing. If you get sound theology, it can lead to sound living. But if you don't have sound theology, there won't be sound living. Now, I'll say this, warning label. Just because you have sound theology doesn't mean you will have sound living. All right? Because I know people who are deep expositionally. I know people who are straight as an arrow theologically, who can tell you what the big toe on the giant in the book of uh, Daniel means eschatologically. They can tell you all the graphs and the charts, and they've got all their theology neatly packaged. They can tell you the difference between superlapsarianism and ultralapsarianism. And they can wax on eloquently about that. But when it comes down to their life, it's a different story. They've got Ephesians chapter 1 to 3 down. They can tell you all about it. They can exegete it all the, the better than I could ever dream of. But when it comes to chapter 4, chapter 6, they're missing it. When it comes to loving their wife like Christ loved the church, when it comes to the indulgences of the flesh, they can't seem to get a grasp on that thing. And that's where we're going. That's where Ephesians is leading us. Biblical theology minus, here's a mathematical equation for you math uh, gurus in here. Biblical theology less practical theology is false theology. If it's not changing your life, it's not changing your attitude, it's not changing the way you live, it's not changing the way you view life, it's not changing the way you emote, it's not changing your relationships, if it's not changing you, it's not real theology. It's only a bunch of babbling rhetoric. There are people who can lead hundreds of souls to Christ, but they can't lead one, their own soul, to following after. And that's a sad reality in the church world, in the Christian world. And I want us to move away from that incongruent life to where we have all of our theology lined up, but we don't have our life lined up. That's what Paul wants to do. That's why he spends the rest of the book talking about our walk with Christ, talking about how we live out our life. In fact, he really wants to bring us today and to kind of launch into this, into making sure our life in several key components are in alignment. See, when your outer world and your inner world are are, are, are opposite, there's incongruency, there's, out, there's misalignment. What happen, has to happen is they have to line up where there's a synergy between them, where they're working hand in hand, where your theology is affecting the way you live. And the way you live is being driven by your theology. And so that is whenever there's a healthy life. 
And that's why the world looks inside the church and they say, you're a bunch of hypocrites. It's because they see misalignment. They see incongruent lifestyle. So what we need to do today and begin this journey in the remainder of Ephesians and understand how our life needs to be aligned. And there's going to be three overarching areas that we'll look at today. Three areas of alignment. So jot them down and look at your life personally and intimately today. First of all, I want to talk about the personal side. It's where our mouth and our manners align. Our mouth is what we say, what we want to be, but it's not only that, it's the manners, the way we live out our life. There's alignment. There's congruency. Paul moves from the, from the known theology to the lived theology. He's trying to get our focus to, to beyond the head knowledge to the walking, living out knowledge. In fact, from chapter 4, chapter one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 2, and 8, and 15, he uses one key overarching word. Walk. Walk. The walk of our life, the the, the day-to-day of our life, that is what we need to be aware of. Is our personal walk, the manner in which we are living, does it line up with with the, the, the words of our mouth? What we really say and believe? We believe? Because sometimes what we say we believe, we believe actually isn't what we believe because what our life says and what our mouth says aren't in line. So we have to make sure that there's alignment there, that that, that the quality of that. Look at verse 1 with me of chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, and we talked about Paul's suffering last week, urge you to walk, walk in a manner worthy. Worthy of what? Worthy of the calling which you've been called. There's a way in which our life must align. It's not aligned according to the way I would like to live my life. It's not aligned according to the way you live your life, and therefore I'm going to live my life like you live your life, because everybody lives their life like that. That's the way of the world. That's the the trends of of, of popular culture. But I'm going to live my life worthy of what? The calling in which I have been called. So what I need to do is I need to understand the calling of God on my life because that's what he called me for. We talked about that in chapter 1. He chose us. He called us. He made us his adopted children. He did that for a reason. And that reason is that we would walk in that standard. We've got to understand something about this whole walk with God. Okay? There's several several elements of walking when you think about it. One is walking is a relational thing. You think about people who are out walking the streets. You see people walking and talking. You see, In a very social culture, you see a whole lot more of this. In African culture, you'll, walk, you'll see man and man, I believe it or not, holding hands, walking and talking. Walking with the Lord is a relational element. This goes back to Genesis when it talked about Enoch walked with God. Now, Enoch's an interesting character. He's one of the few people in Scripture that lived but never died. Just hang on to that. He lived but never died. Does that mean he's still living today? No. Interesting story is that he's the father of Methuselah, the oldest man who ever lived in Scripture. He did not live. Methuselah didn't get it from the genes because... 
Enoch walked with God, and all of a sudden, one day, it says in, in, in chapter it says in chapter 5, two different times in six verses that he walked with God. But then it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. He was walking with God. It's, it's kind of this funny story that a lot of people have kind of made jokes about. That he's like, he's so intimate in his relationship with God. That it was as if God and he were walking through life and all of a sudden, God says, you know what? We're closer to my home than we are to your home, so why don't you just come home with me? Because he doesn't die. He just vanishes. Now, that's a really cool story. But I want you to focus not on the fact that he disappears and vaporizes from the earth. I want you to focus on the fact that he walked with God. What did, what did God do in the cool of the evening with Adam in the garden? Enoch was five generations removed. He hung out with Adam in the cool of the evening. There's a relational element. And what I'm afraid is that what we have done to the Christian faith is we've made it an institutional and not relational. We've made it about doing this and doing that, about ticking this off my list and ticking that off my list, and we have forgotten the relational side of being with God. Let me ask you, how is your relationship with God? Is it growing? Is it maturing? Is it becoming? Because that's the second element of a walk. Of a walk, it's also a, it's a progressive element. That if you're, if you're walking, you're going somewhere. You're walking from A to B, B to C, C to D. You're going somewhere. So the idea that Paul says that we need to walk, how are we to walk? We are to walk to the point that we are walking worthy. There's a progression. Now, none of us in this room would ever even think about admitting or being so bold or brash to think today that you are good enough for God, myself included. I'm not good enough for God. Everything I have is only because of God's great great grace in my life. And I think we all need to own up to that. But he doesn't call us just simply to live in that grace life. He calls us to walk worthy. I will never be worthy. You will never be worthy. But it should be our absolute aim life, to walk in such a way that we will walk worthy. We need to believe as if eternity depends on God, but we need to live as if eternity depends on you. And the idea here is that I absolutely, God, want to be so much in line with your calling me for why you called me. The reason you called me is for a much higher life than Maybe the life I'm living. And that God, that may mean I have to put aside some things. That may mean I have to take up some things. That may mean I need to do some things that I'm not comfortable doing. It may mean I, I may need to make some sacrifices. It may mean I need to do something, God. And sometimes we make it to where the doing is the bad. And really it's not. Christianity, uh, of faith, Christianity is a healthy combination of both being and doing. There is this, there is this, it seems like sometimes we pit them against each other that it's just about being. Well, it is about being, but it's also about because of the being, it results in a life of doing. It results in a changed life. Are you doing, how are you doing in your time with God? In your own personal walk with God? How are you doing in that, in, in your attitudes? How are you doing in your actions? How are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? I know I'm very abstract today. Because for your life, 
the challenges that you deal with are different than the life that I live with, the challenges that I deal with. So how are you doing? How are you walking? How are you fulfilling the calling of God that He's placed on your life, the reason He called you in the beginning? Are you getting closer? Are you in a relationship? Are you progressing? How are are you doing in investing in God? Investing in God. You know, God put in place something that He didn't have to put in place, but He put it in place. Listen to this very carefully. Please lean in on this one. He put something into place in this economy. He didn't have to. Okay, He owns it all. He didn't have to. But He put in place a system called giving. Financial giving. Tithing is where you start in, in, in life. You, pro- you can progress well beyond that, and I think you should. But the problem is, in fact, when you think about tithing, tithing is the most measurable, the most tangible discipline of the Christian faith. I can understand why people might not read the Bible to a degree, because it doesn't make sense to them. Well, you then you dive in and you figure it out. I can understand why some people don't pray because they don't understand they're they're not talking to the air. They're actually talking to God, and God is in the room with them. I can understand that. But there's a tangible, measurable thing that God put into place and is the actual giving of our financial resources in a tithe and an offering to Him. But the reality is, is that most believers don't do this. And I want to say to you real carefully here, but real clearly, If you've been a believer for longer than two years and you are not measuring constantly the tangible, measurable fact of your giving a tithe at least, I would say walking worthy of the calling that he has called you to, you're you're stumbling. You're bumbling. You're stuttering, stepping. And I hear more rationalization and more excuses about the most tangible, measurable discipline of the Christian faith than I do of any of them. Are you walking worthy? Are you progressing in your faith? Are you moving closer and forward? A third of all unborn, excuse me, all born again adults claim to tithe. Barna dug a little deeper into the study of people whenever he did, when he conducted this study, and he found that those who said they were tithing Actually, only 12% did. Because he said, are you tithing? He, they checked yes. Well, maybe, uh, a third of them did. But he also said, why don't you go ahead and put down how much on the survey, anonymous survey, how much do you make and how much do you actually give? Come to find out, 12% of the third that said they tithe of the born-again believers actually tithe. So, folks, I'm saying, are you investing? Are you progressing in your investment? Are you progressing in your time with God? Are you progressing in serving God? Is it one of those things that whenever the church has an opportunity for you to invest in children's lives for the next generation, that you go, oh, that's not for me, and you just move on? When it comes to the idea of serving and giving a little extra of your time to serve the community, you know, I've got so many other things. The lake is just calling me. I'm with you. I love the lake like anybody. But am I progressing in my service to God? We have 25 positions that we need filled in this church. Now, I'm not just talking about 
dust in our life. We try to we try to be as lean as we can in every expense that we can, and we have teaching positions. We're talking about essential ministry positions that need to be filled. Essentials, we call them that because they're week-to-week, day-to-day ministries. Vacancies. We're about to expand our preschool so we can stop telling parents to go home. And what we need is we need families to step up and say, hey, I will serve one and I will worship one. It will become a part of my life. I've never done it before, but because I'm progressing in my faith, I will be there. I will be there. I will be a part of the solution. I'll be part of the answer. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, talks about describing God. He says, in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, a kind of dance. I think about dance. How are you in dancing with the stars? How are you in dancing with God? How are you in step with Him? place you can go online as soon as you get home today and say, go on our homepage and you can sign up and say, I'm available. I'm available here, here, or here. Make yourself available. Make your investment available. Make your time available so that you can progress in your relationship with God. Listen, walk worthily. It's a personal thing. It's a personal thing. Walk worthily. Make sure your manners and your mouth are lining up. Number two, he delves into our relationships. Talks about relational side of us. Our relationships should manifest tenderness and sincerity. I think it's very interesting whenever Paul brings along and continues on in this walking worthily. In verse two, it's in fact none of these elements, these virtues that I will mention here, do you need if you do not live in relationship. But we live in relationships, okay? We were built for relationships. But notice this. You don't need humility if you're the center of the universe. Because after all, you're the center of the universe. But if you live in a relationship, you need humility. You don't need gentleness if it's all about you because you're always right, right? You need gentleness. You need humility. You need patience. You don't need patience if you are always number one. And everybody just has to step in line with you. Again, he's dealing with a relationship side here. He says, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Folks, I want to talk about your relationships for a moment. Because as we live in community, whether your community is in a home, at the address in which you live, or you're in the community of a, of a work team or a school body or a, or a team or an organization or, or you're in a church community and really what he's talking about here is more the family of faith but it applies to all. We need to understand what kind of relational people we are because walking worthy is walking worthy even in our relationships. How are you doing in your relationships? Well, I would say that we would be doing probably extremely better if we had several virtues attached to our life and in our relationships. Jot these down. One is with all humility. With all humility. The opposite of humility is pride. I am right and you are wrong. 
that is the opposite of humility. Are you living in a relationship with your husband, with your wife, with your children, with people in your body called the church family, in humility? Are you living as if you're always right and you've got to prove yourself to be right? Stephen Covey in his book, best-selling book, gave me a statement that I have had to use so many times. Seek first to understand before being understood. How many of y'all have heard that statement? Let me say it to you again. Because it needs to become a reverberating statement in your head. Seek first to understand before being understood. Anytime you're in a relationship and it is your goal to get your point across to that person in the relationship and that if they would just understand you, then they would understand the reality of the world and the universe, then you're missing something. Humility is where you go into the relationship, you go into the conversation, and you first try to understand them with, with, under, with again, those two words, tenderness and sincerity. And if you were to do that, and there have been so many times that I'll go into a conversation, into a point of confrontation, and I'll have to say to myself, seek first to understand, seek first to understand, seek first to understand. And you just have to say it to yourself, to yourself, to yourself again and again. I've got to understand that person, where they're at, and why they did what they did before I have to communicate my point across to them. What if we had more humility in our relationships? What would that do to your relationships? Number two, gentleness. Gentleness is a part of humility. Proverbs says, a gentle man. Jot that verse down in gentle answer turns from wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. I was, I was caught up and hung up on the word wrath this week. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Turns it away. And I, and I did a word study on the word wrath and I was so intrigued by what I found. You know what an alternative translation for this one Hebrew word is? Venom. Venom. That literally, whenever I, what does venom do? What does venom do? Venom goes into the bloodstream. I lived in Africa. I saw some of the poisonous snakes in the world. We had a Mozambique spitting potpourri in our front yard. I've seen some of the most deadly snakes in the world. And as I think about them, I mean, a black mamba, for example, will stand up on his tail, and he will actually chase you. Most other snakes will bite and run, but a black mamba will bite and chase you and bite and bite and bite. You don't want venom in you. Venom begins to shut down your body. Venom begins to tear apart your your tissues. Venom begins to make you deathly sick and could even kill you. A gentle answer turns away wrath. The antivenom for a venomous relationship is gentleness. When it is our harsh words, our cold nature, our determination to beat down the other person is what is wrong. And the relationship is destroyed. Lord McDonald, a pastor, was talking to some of his church members, Dr. Paul and Edith Reese, who had been married for 60 plus years. And in talking with them, he... uh, 
heat was sharing and asking him the secrets of their marriage and different things like that. He asked him, he said, do you all ever fight? Do you all still fight? I mean, they're 90 years old now. Been married for 60 plus years. Do you all still have arguments? And the, the husband said, without hesitation, yes, we had one yesterday. And uh, he said, well, tell me about it. So, well, she was driving, and she ran a stop sign. She nearly killed us and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and he said, how would you deal with that? Oh, I, I was very careful. I was very careful because Edith hears words differently than I do. Edith, Edith I, have to, I have to approach her. And I have to know how to talk to her because, see, when she was a child, her dad was verbally abusive to her, berated her, belittled her. And Edith today, with if I raise my voice, she does not hear my voice. She hears her father's voice. And, and, and Gordon pushed back on that. And he said, are you, are you serious? I mean, this has been 60 years of marriage. 90 years of your life, and he says, she still hears her father's voice. See, what happens with the venom of our wrath is it gets into our life, and somehow we become violent. It becomes dangerous upon our life. And even as I tell you the story, have humility and bitterness in our relationships. Do you think we're walking worthy? Do you think we're living up to the call that he called us to call called us to live up to? So make sure you're gentle with one another. Make sure patience is there. Another thing he said was patience is there. Wow, I'm not good at this. But it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. If God is really in me and he's really saturated me, patient. Willing to give a second, third, fourth chance or be a part of our relationships. I like this next one. Bearing with one another in love. He could have just said loving people. He didn't. He said bearing with one another in love. Literally helping to get under people's lives and helping them to bear underneath the weight of the world, the weight of their load, the weight of their circumstance, the weight of their, their, their relationship over here, the weight of their job over here. It's literally getting underneath and helping up because you love that person so much. How are we living in relationship with one another? If we aren't bearing up underneath people, carrying their loads with them, is why in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul encourages us, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's exactly the life that Christ lived. We've got to bear with one another. We've got to bear their loads with them. Are you doing that or are you heaping upon their load? There's another one here, and I, I, I just, it's so bold. I, it's as if he spends the rest of his time almost developing and, and fleshing it out. Because the last thing he says in this litany of things, these virtues that we need to have, he says that we also need to be eager to maintain unity in the spirit of the bond of peace. The spirit of the bond of peace. 
There ought to be unity. We ought to strive for unity. Notice that unity and peace are heads and tails. They're heads and tails of the same coin. Another word study I did this week was the word unity because it's clear, it's evident throughout the entire passage that unity, unity is absolutely there. And the, and, 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 and the, the, the word uh, that he's telling us to go to, he's, notice that he says eager to maintain unity. The word eager is an intriguing word as well. It means to run. It means to chase after. It means to be fast too. But here's the problem in relationships sometimes. When things don't go our way, strife comes in. What happens? The cold shoulder goes up. Walls go up. Can't penetrate. Can't get in. The other person wants you to live in the Arctic Circle. They want you to feel the pain that you're that, that, that you've inflicted upon them. So they're going to inflict some pain of silence upon you or wrath upon you. All of a sudden, what could have been a sweet reunion, a better understanding, if there had been humility, gentleness, patience, bearing up with one another in love, because maybe it's the load that's on that person that's actually, they're just displacing, displacing it onto you, and that if we could learn how to relate with one another, then maybe we would be more unified. But what happens in our relationship is we allow walls to be built. We allow things to separate us, and we aren't eager running towards unity. It's something that ought, to, that, that ought to get our feet moving. That's why Jesus, that's why, that's why Paul talked about not even let the sun go down on our anger. Will it mean if you live in a relationship of community with your husband or your wife or your children or, or in the church, will, will it mean that you'll not have conflict? Does it mean that you just ignore the, 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 the disagreements? Not at all. I like the way Bill Hybels puts it. He says, the mark of of community, true biblical unity, is not the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of a reconciling spirit. It means there's, there's issues here. We can't let these issues be ignored. We can't let these disagreements just go unsolved. It's not my desire to be right. It's my desire to be reconciled. Would you please jot that down and tattoo it on your life? It's not my desire to be right. It's my desire to be reconciled. And if reconciliation means that I have to humbly swallow crow, if I have to gently handle the circumstances, then I'm living in relationship. The kind of relationship that he called us to live in, that we should walk worthy. This is the worthy lifestyle that he's called us to. Relational wholeness. Relational congruency. Relational alignment happens when we're eager, running towards unity. Happens when we're bearing up underneath one another in love. Happens when gentleness and patience and humility mark our relationship and mark our life. We talked about relational alignment. We talked about personal alignment. The third alignment is spiritual. There there must be a deep devotion and connection with the whole of God. With the entirety of God. Verse 
verse 4 and 6, again, he carries on with this unity theme. And he's trying to motivate us to be unified and to be eager to seek unity because of our faith, because of our spirituality. Notice what he says here in verse 4 and following. There is one. No, seven different times he will use the word one to emphasize, to, to mark for us. This is, a, this is a characteristic. This is a quality of the Christian faith that unity marks us. There is one body. There is one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. Again, he keeps going back to call here. One Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Notice the alls. You want to understand the totality of spirituality. Understand it in light of the unity of God. That God brings us together because He is together. We see in this passage the Godhead being a part of our example unity in our relationship, unity in our life, and unity with God. We see it right here. In fact, you'll never find the word Trinity in all of the Bible. But you find the reality of the Trinity throughout the Bible. You find it in Genesis chapter 1 whenever God was creating the heavens and the earth. You find it here whenever you find, in fact, just highlight these, underscore them. He talks about one Spirit. He talks about one Lord. He talks about one God and Father. You see the Trinity all wrapped up there. God the Spirit, God the Son, the Lord, and God the Father. All right there together. What are they doing? They're working in unison. They're bringing the world together. Now in this world of tolerance, let me finish with this little thought. In the world of tolerance, that is actually an unbiblical thought. Let me, let me explain Because what tolerance does, tolerance makes unity deity. Tolerance makes, the the number one thing is we just got to all get along. Okay? Adrian Rogers said it well. I'd rather be divided over the truth than united in error. Okay? There there are going to be opportunities that that will avail themselves to us that there's a difference. And we, yeah, we might appreciate the difference. But the reality is, is that unity, tolerance is not right. Acceptance is. That's a more biblical model. Because unity, or excuse me, tolerance says unity is the number one goal in life, and it's not. The number one goal in life is that we would be united under one God, one Father, one Spirit, and one Lord. And that actually what is a better representation of the Christian faith is acceptance. Because you know what acceptance does? Acceptance says, you're different, you're, you've done wrong, I've done wrong, we've all done wrong, but I'm going to accept you anyway. And you're going to accept me anyway. When Lori and I got married 20 years ago, there was a, there was a, a whole lot of my life that was not congruent with a healthy relationship. Come from a broken home, had some stupid, bad decision relationships in my own life. Why in the world would she want to give herself to me? But what happens in that relationship is that she she accepted me. She accepted the brokenness. Now, 
if tolerance was the goal, if tolerance and unity and all around that was my God, then what she would do is she would have tolerated an ongoing lifestyle of riotous living. But that was not what she was after. She was after me, and she would accept me with all my baggage, all my brokenness, but she accepted me and my past, but she loved me in my future. Again, progressive relationship, walking together. It's no different in our relationship with God. God wants a relationship with you, and He will accept your broken, messed up, incomplete life. He will accept it. But He will not tolerate ongoing living like that. He wants all of you. And He's calling all of us to walk worthy of the calling that He's called us to live. Would you pray with me? you to look into your heart and soul for a moment. And I want you to ask yourself, is there congruency? Is there an agreement in your life that is in balance and in tune with our Lord? Is your life spiritually in line with Him? I've talked about a lot of things. Because our, our faith encompasses all of our life. It encompasses our spirituality. It encompasses our relationships. It encompasses our individual day-to-day, 24-7 walk. If there's any part of your life that is not aligned with our Lord, with the, with the Spirit, with our God and Father, then let this be a time that you lay it before God. Maybe you come and pray at the front and just kneel down here. Maybe you can grab me. I'll be standing on the front row here. And say, Mike, my life is in alignment. My life isn't whole. It isn't on track. I want it to be there. Father, we're not playing games. If this were keeps, if this